there's no better place to lose yourself and find yourself than between the covers of a book. Hi, I'm Ann Bocock, and it's time to go between the covers. From mystery to adventure, from romance to history, I interview authors of all genres. Join me for in-depth conversations into their creative processes, their struggles, and of course, their successes. This episode was originally streamed live and includes viewer questions. Enjoy. The novel Miracle Creek, well, it's such a good read. It is no wonder that the author Angie Kim just won the Edgar Award for it. It's a courtroom drama that's going to grab you from page one. It's an immigrant story. It's a family drama. It's a medical crisis. There is technology that defies science. And at its core is a real hard look at motherhood. Angie Kim, welcome. I am so glad that you're here with me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. First of all, the book Miracle Creek, it's about South Korean immigrants, the Yu family, a father, a mother, a young daughter, her name is Mary. They come to America really to make a better life for themselves, but really to make a better life for their child. It's a really sensitive look at what the immigrant story is. How much of this is your story? So the immigrant a family story is one strand of this novel, and I would say it's pretty much based on my my own family's experience. So my I'm also an only child, like Mary is in the novel, and my parents and I came uh, over to the Baltimore area from Seoul, South Korea, when I was 11, just like Mary did in the novel as well. So. Um, a lot of that is based on my own family's experience, but more than just the circumstances of their life, both in Korea and in the U.S. when they first uh, immigrate, is really just the emotional dynamics of the family um, with respect to the daughter feeling resentful at having to make this move, um, even though it is for her future. You know how children are at that age, and I now have children of my own who are that age and so who are teenagers and preteens. So I definitely understand that dynamic, but it's so um, difficult when your whole life is displaced and you come over to a place in middle school where you don't speak the language, where the culture is different, where clothing trends are different, everything. And so there is a lot of resentment and lack of understanding from the daughter at having to make this move and sort of uproot everything that she knows about life. And so a lot of that dynamic is present as well. I'm going to ask if you could read something, a passage from Miracle Creek, and then you set it up and then we'll talk further. Sure. So Miracle Creek is um, told from the perspectives of seven different characters. Um, and each character takes a, a chapter and then they sort of go back and forth. Um, and this is a chapter from the middle of the novel. Um, and it the novel takes place over a four-day murder trial. And this is from the third day. And it's told from the perspective of the Korean immigrant father, Pak Yu. 
and he is about to go on um, and be a witness. And so he's having to think through um, the whole difficulty of speaking in, in English um, in front of a whole bunch of people, including the jury. Park Yu is a different person in English than in Korean. In a way, he supposed, it was inevitable for immigrants to become child versions of themselves, stripped of their verbal fluency and with it, a layer of their competence and maturity. Before moving to America, he'd prepared himself for the difficulties he knew he'd experience. The logistical awkwardness of translating his thoughts before speaking, the intellectual taxation of figuring out words from context, the physical challenge of shaping his tongue into unfamiliar positions to make sounds that didn't exist in Korean. But what he hadn't known, hadn't expected, was that this linguistic uncertainty would extend beyond speech and, like a virus, infect other parts, his thinking, demeanor, his very personality itself. In Korean, he was an authoritative man, educated and worthy of respect. In English, he was a deaf, mute idiot, unsure, nervous, and inept. A pabo. Angie, that's powerful. In the book, and not spoiling anything, but something really terrible happens in Miracle Creek. And people die. A child dies. A, a, a mother dies. Lives are changed forever. Then I had to Google because I wasn't really sure if this was a thing, and it is a thing. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Did I leave something out? No, the HBOT for short. H-bot. Yes. What is that? So HBOT is a real thing. It's in hospitals. It's probably in everybody's hospital that you, I can think of. Um, and it's used for FDA-approved treatments um, uh, as a, an FDA-approved treatment for things like carbon monoxide poisoning, for burns, for wound healing. But it's also used as an experimental treatment for things ranging from Lyme disease and infertility to cerebral palsy and autism. And what it is, is you go inside this thing that looks like a submarine. Um, On Grey's Anatomy, actually, this season, they had a brand new chamber. um, And actually, House MD also has this. You go in and it actually looks like a room. But regardless of the shape, the one that I used actually looks like a submarine. And so you go in, you crawl in, and you know it's all steel, and um, it's pressurized. And so as the chamber is being pressurized, you feel the popping, you know, in your ears, like you when you're in an airplane, because the of the pressure change, and then they. Um, feed in pure oxygen, 100% oxygen for people to breathe in. And the theory is that because of the pure oxygen, which is needed for healing in your body, it can really delve deep into your cells because of the high pressure. And then that accelerates healing. And so that's why it's used for some of these conditions. And uh, yeah, and, and it's, it's uh, because of the pure oxygen, it's very dangerous and it's risky and you have to take lots of safeguards. And in the novel, in the very beginning, there is an explosion by the oxygen 
tanks and we think it may have been deliberate sabotage and we're not sure and thus the murder trial. What's the murder trial? You refer to these experiences in the chamber as dives. I guess that's yes. that what they're called, dives? Yes, exactly. They are called dives. I think that's the vernacular that hospitals use as well. And that's certainly the uh, terminology that we used ourselves. And in the book, there are, for the most part, it is mothers and children. And these are children with autism. And this was an experience an experimental procedure, correct? Yes. Um, so autism and cerebral palsy are probably the two childhood neurological conditions that it's become, it, it's been fairly um, prevalent as far as just an experimental treatment that some families um, who are desperate for improvements in their children and uh, to treat these conditions from a medical perspective have tried. One thing I'm going to say about your book, I want all books to do this. In the very beginning, you list the cast of characters, and I constantly was referring back to it. Kudos for that. I think that should be mandatory. In the book, when these women, mostly, they're mostly women, are together, there's an interesting dynamic. They're not friends. They become friendly, I guess. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of comparison Tell me about that dynamic. What yeah. are you getting at there? Sure. I think that, you know, um, I have seen this community of um, mothers of children with chronic illnesses and special needs come together in my own community, having done this HBOT um, treatment for one of my kids who was suffering from ulcerative colitis at the time. And they, what, one of the things that I saw is this, there's this intensity that develops inside the chamber. So you are sealed in together for an hour at a time for these dives. And there's nothing to do inside except talk to each other because you can't, you know, because of the pure oxygen, you can't bring in electronics or books or anything that could help to pass the time. So you you end up talking to each other and you notice the things that the kids are doing because there's a lot of anxiety. There may be kids who are so anxious that their OCD behaviors come out in the open in this closed, you know, tiny environment. Um, so it's very intense. And there are a lot of comparisons and trading of life stories. And one thing that really struck me in talking to these women and in being in this environment myself was this hierarchy of disabilities that almost develops. You know, it's sort of like uh, in the typical children's uh, world, you have these moms who are sort of comparing and contrasting, you know, their own experiences like, you know, oh, well, my kid made the all-star. Well, mine's going to this college. Mine, you know, is I, on a roll or whatever it is. And I feel like in this community, there is that type of a comparison, but there's also a closeness because you're also comparing each other's experiences to try to learn from each other because so much of this is new to all to everyone. And so there's this closeness that develops and then the envy that develops, as I think happens with all parents, is in some ways even more intense because the envy is not just about things like, well, what grades did your kids get? It's about, can your 
child speak? Is your child able to walk and run? Um, some kids have feeding tubes. So, you know, I mean, it's, there's just such, it's just more life and death. And now that some of these kids that I've known for a long time are getting to be adults, um, one thing that um, I'm seeing that's happening within my own circle of friends who are going through this with their kids is not sort of college decisions, which is something that I, you know I'm grappling with right now with my oldest, but instead things like, well, um, am I going to have my child live with me or go to a group home? Um, and who's going to take care of my child once I'm gone? Once, you know, if I'm sick or if once I'm, you know, I've passed. And so it's just these life or death questions that just brings an intensity um, that to me was just so visceral and intimate and intense all at the same time. And that chamber, the HBOT chamber became a crucible. You know, it's a physical crucible because, you know, you're locked in there. You're literally sealed in. You cannot get out. And it's also this emotional crucible because there's just so many feelings and jealousies and hurts and cooperation and warmth and love all sort of swirling in and coming to a boiling point. If you are enjoying the show so far, make sure to subscribe. We post new episodes every Monday. And don't forget to leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. The takeaway that I got, Angie, was a real unvarnished look at motherhood. And I think this, yes, we're talking special needs children, but this goes to all mothers. I think maybe mothers have been sold a bill of goods that you can do it all, you can have it all, and so can your kid. Was that what what you were, were saying? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm saying, you know, I didn't set out to provide any sort of message of any kind, you know, because it is a novel and I'm just more exploring these characters lives and seeing what comes out. And a lot of the things that, you know, I think people have talked about as having touched them personally about the novel, I've actually heard sort of after I've finished the novel. So that's actually one of the more fascinating things that I think can happen to an author, which I'm so grateful for. But one of the things that I have had lots of conversations with people about is that the novel really gets at this myth of the saintly mother, the myth of the good mother with a capital G and a capital M, if you will, you know, sort of you're, you're supposed to, especially when you're taking care of a child with special needs or medical issues, then you just become this 24 by seven caretaker and you are seen as a saint. In fact, there's a character in here whose name is Teresa and uh, people jokingly call her mother Teresa just because she is seen as so saintly. And what that does is when she has thoughts that are shameful, as I think all mothers do, all people do from time to time, 
about the resentment that she feels about having to be in this role all the time and maybe some fantasies of escape um, that she also has from time to time. Those things become even more shameful to her. And I think that's what it does when we put this expectation of the perfect mother on the group of mothers. We sort of tell mothers, like, you are supposed to love this experience. You are supposed to relish it. This is supposed to be something that you're not supposed to have any negative thoughts about. And so when we do, because we will, because we're human, we all, everybody, I think, does, then it just makes us feel like we're monsters. And I think that's the importance of showing these types of thoughts, these, the interiority, even if it's sometimes negative and shameful and bringing it out in the open to let us all know that we're not monsters and that we are not alone in having these thoughts and having sometimes thinking, you know, I don't want to be a mother. Like I didn't sign up for this and having those rage moments that I think, you know, they're entitled to have. Mothers, thank you for that. The story is told through a courtroom, and you are now an award-winning author, but you were an attorney with a Harvard Law degree, no less, so that to me would be the American dream. Child of immigrants graduates Harvard Law. Why the switch? So it's actually a circuitous route that I took to being a writer. So being a writer is my fifth career, if you can believe it. Um, so I was a lawyer and I was a litigator, a trial lawyer, and I did love being in the courtroom. And that's another aspect of my life that is in this novel, which is my first novel. And so I think because it's your, you know, with your first book, I think the temptation is to sort of like put all the things, all the things that you, that are important to you about your life and try to cram it in there. And so the courtroom scenes were really fun to revisit because I did love that aspect of being a lawyer. Unfortunately for me, being in the courtroom is like 5% of being a trial lawyer, like as far as the day-to-day -day grind of doing the work. And I unfortunately hated everything about being a lawyer except for being in the courtroom. So that meant that I was pretty miserable on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, I just decided that I didn't want to be doing something that I wasn't loving, um, that I wasn't, you know, getting a lot of happiness out of. And it's funny because my husband, who's also a trial lawyer, I remember he, he was very supportive about the career switch, but I do remember him saying at one point, you know, Ange, I, I just think that you don't understand. That's why they pay you because you're not supposed to be happy. <laughs> it's supposed to be work. Not like, you know, a hobby that you do because you want to do it. That's why we get paid. And I was like, yeah, I think I can find something that doesn't make me miserable, though. And so um, I switched to the business world by being a management consultant. And then I was a dot-com entrepreneur during the uh, 1990s. And then I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time. I have a question, and it's less about writing than really about plotting because there are a lot of characters in this book and everything happens in a relatively short time and you need to have each character in a specific place at a specific time. I'm figuring there was a whiteboard somewhere with all with grids of who is where and how 
how did you keep everyone in your head? How did, how did you do that? Yeah, I think that was a huge intellectual challenge um, and one of the more satisfying parts of writing this novel. So I am not a planner. I'm not an outliner. So I did not know, for example, who set the fire when I started writing. At what point writing the book? Did you know who set the fire? I would say about halfway through the first draft. So about a year into writing. Um, and even before I wrote, there was another six months of just sort of imagining the world and doing a lot of free writing. So about a year and a half really into writing the novel. And I think of the novel as uh, whodunit certainly, but more of a how done it and why done it. And even after I knew who done it, I didn't know how or why until really very close to the end. It was sort of like I had to have faith that I would figure it out somehow. Um, but it was really after the first draft was done that I did the hard work of going through and outlining what I had already written and then sort of doing all of these crazy chronologies that are all up like all over the blank wall of my writing nook. It would have to be. Yeah, and it's color-coded by character, so it's definitely like, you know, it's there's colors and there's markers everywhere and there's like chronologies and timelines and calendars and lots and, and you know, at 12% uh, of the novel point, this happens. Is that the right point for that to happen from a pacing perspective, that type of thing? Well thought out. Thank you. There's an awful lot in the book about mothers. We have talked about mothers. I think we should talk about fathers for a minute. You used the term that I had never heard before, goose father. Can yes. You, this is a South Korean expression? Um, yes, exactly. Um, it is, yes, kiragi appa. And uh, it means wild goose father or goose father. And it is a real thing that it's a, it's a phenomenon that hit Korea maybe in the last 15 years or so. So this is not something that I went through myself or that my family went through. Um, my family, my mom and my dad both came over with me, at, you know, when, I, when we, we moved together as a family to the U.S., but the Yu family is a goose father family, meaning that the father, Pak, whose voice you just heard, um, is someone who stayed behind in Seoul while the mother and the daughter went to, um, came to America. And the mom worked in a grocery store and they lived with a host family and the host family arranged for the daughter to attend a school nearby uh, with a scholarship and things like that. And this is a very common thing that's happening now. I can't remember the numbers. It's, it's, it's in excess of a million um, families, um, which is just unbelievable to me. So what the rationale is that the dad stays behind so that he can continue to work and make money and you know the child and the mother go away to you know someplace like the US or Canada or something like that or Australia I think is another common one and so that for the child's education so that they can learn English so that they can go to a high school system that is not in Korea because Korea is just so demanding as and there's, you know, just so much stress and there's a, the suicide rates among the high school students are very high. And so 
to sort of escape that and uh, experience this other education system. And they're called goose fathers because they um, migrate or fly once a year to see their family. So they, these families are basically are separated completely except that they come together once a year. The dad usually flies or whatever. And, uh, and then there's um, a variant of that called penguin fathers, which is what Pock Yu in my novel is. And that's because the penguins never fly. So the, these fathers, actually, they're so poor that they can't even afford to fly once a year to see their families. So they just never see each other. Very important part. Yeah, it's it's so to me to to me a lot of my novel is about parenting sacrifice and the lengths to which parents are willing to go for their ch- for their children, um, and willing to sort of go through self-effacing things. And I think it's just so important this concept because to me this is the extreme of parenting sacrifice. I can't believe that people do this. Angie, absolutely. The I want to congratulate you on the Edgar, and for you, I'm holding my Edgar out. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Sorry, you didn't get to actually go there in person, but it is what it is now. One quick thing. Hopefully, this will be on the big screen because it is what we are begging. This book is begging for that. Um, And I'm ready for the next book, so I can't wait to see that. Congratulations again. The book is Miracle Creek. Angie Kim, what a pleasure. I'm Ann Bocock, and thank you for listening to Go Between the Covers, produced by South Florida PBS. To stay connected with us and our guests, check out our show notes or visit us at southfloridapbs.org slash gobtc. Next Monday, I'm sitting down with nationally recognized and highly respected book critic, Aline Cogdell. Her reviews appear in more than 300 publications worldwide. She's giving us the inside scoop on upcoming trends and the responsibility that comes with the job. Don't miss it.